0: You're listening to Power and Public Space, a co production of Drawing Matter and the Architecture Foundation. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. Parc de La Viette was emblematic of the strong ties made between architecture and philosophy in the 1980s, where deconstructivism in particular became a theoretical framework through which buildings and landscapes were both designed and interpreted. Visual fragmentation and conceptual links to semiotic analysis characterize this period of architecture, which can be thought of as originating in projects like Cora L. Works. This was a collaboration between the architect Peter Eisenman and the philosopher Jacques Derrida, and the unrealized Cora project was intended to stand within the Parc de la Villette complex as an ode to a dialogue between architecture and philosophy. In light of such pressing issues as climate change, decolonization, and spatial inequality, the formal experimentation and philosophical inquiry of Cora L. works can appear abstract and disengaged. In this episode, the scholar André Petrao reflects on this period of recent architectural history and what we can learn from it in terms of its implications for public space today. We recorded this interview in March of 2022. André was in his office at Yale University in Connecticut, and I was at the Architecture Foundation in London. All right, so here's my interview with André Petra. So, Parc de la Viette was emblematic of a collaboration between architecture and philosophy. And a Decade One, that was really popular. And I wondered if you could take me back to this particular moment in the 1980s and help me understand First of all, the kind of relationships that were being forged between these two disciplines of philosophy and architecture at the time.
1: Well, the second half of the 20th century was really the heyday for these kinds of interactions. I mean the the relation between architecture and philosophy goes back since antiquity. We find it in Vitruvius, we find it in Aristotle, Plato. But this period, more or less between the sixties and the early nineties, is really uh, a moment where architects and philosophers rediscover one another and take this relation to a whole new level in a very experimental way, too, and engaging many more issues than before, uh, way beyond aesthetics, for example, which was dominant before. Uh, this collaboration between Eisenman and Derrida is really the culmination of this period. So, to provide some context, um, in between 1985 and 1987, uh, Eisenman and Derrida were working together to draw a small garden within Chumi's La Villette Park in Paris. And this is probably the most famous interaction of the period. Uh, definitely the most well-documented. We've got transcripts, we've got drawings, texts that they wrote in the meantime and afterwards, reflections about uh, their collaboration. It's also, maybe because of all the expectations around it, it's also quite a big failure because the project was never built, but a phenomenal failure. It's uh, it's really bringing architecture and philosophy to their limits, the limit of their collaboration and seeing how that falls apart in a remarkable way. It wasn't given a lot of attention at the time because uh, it didn't work out, but I think revisiting it now is really fascinating. We discover so much about how architecture and philosophy can or cannot interact.
0: So this particular project is emblematic of what's referred to as deconstructivism. Is that right, is that fair to say?
1: It's fair to say that it's come to stand as an emblematic project for the world, but I think Eisenman wouldn't be happy about it, Chumi wouldn't be happy about it. Actually, all the architects within the deconstructivist umbrella would not be happy to be there. Um, So deconstructivism comes from um, an exhibition uh, 19, in 1998 at the um, Museum of Modern Art in New York, um, organized by Philip Johnson and Mark Wigley. And it brought together seven somewhat unlikely architects. Chumi, Eisenman, Gary, uh Zadid, Liebskin, Colas, and Wolf Brix And what brought them together was a formal aspect of, of their work. The fact that... It somewhat resembled our instinctive way of thinking of what the word deconstructivist means. But what, where does the word come from? On the one hand, it picks up on Derrida's deconstruction, which is something very different. It's a philosophical approach um, to reading texts, but texts in a very broad sense—texts in a sense that includes uh, institutions, projects, drawings, etc and it mixes deconstruction with constructivism. But it strips both deconstruction and constructivism from their real depth. So constructivism, for example, had a very strong social, political purpose during the Russian Revolution. In deconstructivism, all that dimension is stripped away and we only have a formal dimension. The fact that it kind of looks like these projects have been disassembled. So it's a problematic term conceptually. It's problematic for the architects, too, that were very uncomfortable to be gathered there around this, this strange um, exhibition. But definitely the word has remained in our vocabulary. So it
0: sounds like it's more of a curatorial conceit than a, an intentional kind of mantle that architects would gather under. But at the same time, it still, to me, harkens back to this moment where there was a really strong affinity between the the conceptual realm and design. And I feel like architects now look back on deconstructivism somewhat ruefully as this period of formal experimentation and philosophical inquiry that was very abstract and disengaged from issues that had become increasingly central to architectural discourse today, like climate change or decolonization, for example. So how should we be interpreting this historical moment? And what, if anything, can we learn from it?
1: Uh, I would answer this question in two ways. First of all, uh, point out that the interactions between architecture and philosophy in this period weren't only at a conceptual abstract level, even though this was certainly the most Uh, paradigmatic kind of interaction, but there were social and political concerns, very strong uh, concerns. Uh, Foucault, uh, Michel Foucault, was one of the reference philosophers of this period, and he wasn't talking about abstraction. He was being very concrete about the social issues uh, he addressed. And second, the relation changed in the same way that the the disciplines changed and the issues that they have to face changed so architecture is different today philosophy is different as well the problems that are on the agenda also changed what remains is there's still a relation between the two of them because it's still productive so the same way that these authors were tackling the issues that were relevant for them at that time now we should be doing the same and not just looking back and trying to talk about the same thing over and over again. And at that time, one of the issues was, what is the status of architecture? Uh, What should architecture be doing after modernism? There's so many options, there's so many possibilities. We need guidelines and philosophy really fed into that, giving lots of alternatives, lots of possible uh, formulations of what architecture could do. Uh, So it's as relevant today as it was then, but the issues are different.
0: So who are some philosophers whose work resonates with the current concerns of architecture? And are there any particular dialogues between architects and philosophers today that you think can help illuminate new ways of thinking about the production of public space?
1: This is a very difficult question. I think it's the the hardest question. Uh, First of all, because uh, it's easier to pinpoint these very influential philosophers when we look back, because we know they've been influential, than actually looking around us. Also, because there's so many more authors right now and, and such a variety of topics that it's not easy to really give two or three a kind of monopoly on uh, speaking to, uh, to architects. And architects too are producing an enormous amount of work. So if I have to point out some names, well, there are classics like uh, Foucault. He, he's still one of the, the most cited uh, philosophers in, uh, in architectural works. Um, Hannah Arendt, uh, who um, who's become, um, uh, has become a, a, an important author again in a way we discovered nowadays. Uh, just a few years ago, the journal Oase published an issue dedicated to Hannah Arendt. There are more contemporary authors like uh, Badiou, Agamben, uh, Chantal Mouffe, Jacques Rancière. Um If I can add some uh, publicity here, uh, the upcoming issue of architecture philosophy will be about public space. Uh, I'm Hmm. co-editing that with uh, Hans Tiers and uh, Christoph Baumberger after a conference on the topic last year from the uh, International Society of Philosophy of Architecture. (laughs) So uh, here is the proof that we're talking about contemporary issues and I think These two issues, uh, journal issues this time, will have a mix of, on the one hand, the big names we all know, and on the other hand, new authors exploring um, new issues too. And maybe that's the biggest challenge of all right now is uh, what are architects looking for in terms of topics, not people? And while looking for topics, answers to their concerns, who are they going to discover? Maybe in 20, 30 years, we can look back and and point out a couple of names. But right now, the exciting thing is, who are we going to find?
0: I'm interested in this uh, forthcoming issue of the journal you mentioned, and I wondered if you could talk more about um, some of the articles or chapters in it, if there's any content that is up for discussion.
1: Not yet. It's under peer review. (laughs) Uh,
0: I mean, I think we need, I think we're almost there, but I feel like, because you had this like list of names, right, of philosophers that Mm -hmm. um, are probably familiar, if not at least recognizable um, to architecture students and practitioners. But I wonder if maybe on a more personal level, there are philosophers who you think can help. (laughs) And, and how you think they can help. Um, hmm. I realize this is putting you on the spot.
1: <laughs> can I avoid the question with a different answer? <laughs> I don't know, I think it's...
0: Um, it's um,
1: I, I can give an answer and you'll see if that works or not, if it's enough or not, and, and if not, we can <laughs> keep going. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, can yeah. keep grilling me and uh, <laughs> insisting uh, on this point. Um, so uh, I, I would go back to Derrida and Eisenman, which seems like a strange move because Eisenman isn't notoriously apolitical in his architecture, especially compared with uh, other architects in his generation. Politics is mostly a a form of networking uh, and not so much um, a driving force in his design. And Derrida was a a late bloomer for um, political philosophy. He wrote Spectres of Marx uh, some years after this collaboration. And it was quite unexpected because Marx wasn't really um, a principal talking point at that time as it had been in previous decades. Uh, their design is a political too. They, they have no intention. They don't discuss politics. That's not in their mind. That doesn't mean we can't read the project politically or that it doesn't have political consequences. And one of the most interesting consequences i see of uh, this project is the fact that it's a political as politically significant and that's important nowadays in in a global political concept that is uh, uh, in a global political context that's very polarized especially here um, in the US it's very hard to find points of uh, interaction between these polarized sides and so spaces that are apolitical, provide bridges, they, they offer a way of communicating about issues that are not political, bring people together and maybe then help discuss these, uh, these apparently uh, polarized polit- uh, positions. So I think the value of the apolitical space in a politically polarized world is crucial and a way of attaining that is, is discussing other issues that are not political, like the and Eisenman were doing in La Villette. Uh-huh. Which doesn't uh-huh. mean that architects can always escape the, the political. So I can think of counter-examples like uh, Kola's project in, in Beijing, um, Zaha Hadid in Baku. They had no intention of um, supporting the um, political powers in these countries. But there is a consequence to that. I mean, they are promoting the regime. They are creating monuments that uh, legitimize and glorify, in a way, these totalitarian regimes. So the architect cannot always escape the political, even if an architect decides my architecture is not political, I'm going to ignore it. Political issues are just there all the time, and you have to face them.
0: Okay. You didn't answer my question about, um, in a way, kind of plea for uh, a prescription or a reading list of of philosophers who can help us make sense of this moment we're living in. Uh, But at the same time, I understand your need to almost recuse yourself from answering that question, given you're a scholar of architectural philosophy or there's a relationship between philosophy and architecture. And as you say... Your view is more retrospective, um, that it's very difficult to look around in the present moment and understand uh, what's what's valuable or, or important or what should be held up above the rest to kind of indicate something specific about the time we're living in now. But at the same time, I feel like that's that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe just one more question, which is kind of I think what we've been orbiting, um, and it's and it's obviously the most kind of abstract and difficult question. But again, like it, it's a question I feel like you you must be asking yourself, especially as you put together this um, this journal. Um, and it, it's simply what kind of influence might philosophy have on how public space. Is conceived
1: and designed today. We can go back to Foucault to answer that question. You know that that just proves the point that uh, that uh, philosophers, uh, that architects we're reading in the '60s, '70s, '80s are still uh, relevant. I mean, Foucault talked about this. How how powerful is architecture or urbanism um, in in political matters? He, he He wasn't really uh, overexcited. Uh, he, He would say that architecture and urbanism aren't irrelevant, but they're not the deciding forces. And if you think about it, Uh, If you think about his examples, at least, he does have a point. He talks about, for example, how the panopticon uh, as a prison works in a horrible way because it surveys everyone and makes everyone think they're being watched. Uh, But then he shows how something like the Familiester, which was um, a housing complex for um, uh, factory workers, had all the best intentions in the world, but also created a kind of panopticon courtyard where everyone can see who was uh, coming home, when, with whom. There's also a sense of control. Foucault would say, in the end, it's the way people use the space that will, um, that will really shape it. And the way public spaces have been taking, uh, taken over also proves that point. I'm sure that <laughs> some of the grand squares in, um, in the European capitals weren't designed for public protests and yet that's what we've we've seen over and over again so perhaps the question is how strong is the architect or the urbanist's role in shaping space i think we can agree that there's definitely a, a direct impact but there's not an absolute power it eventually goes down to how people use it and, and that goes beyond our control even historically uh, maybe we can design a space for How it can be used now but in a couple of years it's just taken over in a completely different way
0: yeah i've been noticing the prevalence of this term lived experience in architectural discourse now where there's a real focus and interest on the user or the occupant and a a real enthusiasm for uh, use and misuse and the kind of disobedient, the fundamentally disobedient nature mm-hmm. of, of how, archi- how architecture, especially in public space, is appropriated by a public. So it's interesting to hear you kind of reinforce that point through this discussion about Foucault and his relevance to thinking about public space today. Uh, but it also means that the role of the architect uh, comes into question and needs to be reconsidered as being in a position where um, in fact, there isn't a significant amount of power or that uh, it's a position that requires a profound imagination for for a public <laughs> or on behalf of a public. And so I guess in a way it starts to suggest this, um, this merging of the architect and the user or the public and the designer and this kind of flattening out or um, democratizing of the way we conceive of and design public spaces.
1: Um, I wouldn't underestimate the power of boundaries, even in a democratic context. And for example, perhaps we shouldn't speak of the power of the architect in this sense, but the responsibility of the architect as someone who's knowledgeable in the field when Uh, designing and communicating and collaborating with the population in designs. But there's still a boundary, there's a different uh, role, uh, but a boundary that um, can be uh, jumped over. Uh, The same thing with the designs, I I think, Um, instead of talking about power as in calculating all the possible uses or constraining uses to be sure that's exactly what's going to happen perhaps it makes more sense to think of the project as a dialogue with the users as well. So maybe crystallizing some ideas of that time or certain intentions that uh, users will feel like their experience finds a home there. But also that that project can be something one can react against, so that certain principles become tangible. And And then you can criticize them. You can go against them. Uh, So there's a dialogue there, both in in a receptive capacity and in the willingness of being uh, criticized, of being a a part of uh, this dialectic, maybe um, between all participants in the built environment.
0: I love that we've come back to this idea of a dialogue which began first with this correspondence between a philosopher and and an architect in the form of (laughs) Eisenman and Derrida. And now we've arrived when we're kind of grappling with thinking about the contemporary, as far as architecture goes, with this consideration of a dialogue between the architect and the public. And I feel satisfied with that as a conclusion. Andre, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. This was a really nice discussion. At some point, I just forgot this was supposed to be a podcast.
0: Power in Public Space is a co-production of Drawing Matter and the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. Check out the other episodes in this series, which are all online and ready to stream wherever you're hearing this now. If you like the show, leave a rating on iTunes, and thanks for listening.